L1, L2, and L3 are very unique. Uh, those segments are different than the lower, the lower lumbars of L4 and L5. So with L1, L2, and L3, you're rarely, uh, and I'm not gonna say never, but you're rarely gonna have a patient come in and point to L1, L2, L3 and say, this is where the pain is. Now I say that to you, but I recently had somebody point to L2 and say, this is where the pain is. So I'm not saying never, but rarely does that happen. And so with L1, L2, and L3, if you're only adjusting those segments when somebody complains of pain at those segments, you're probably not adjusting it as often as you should be. So if we ask the question, well, if we can't find it by pain, then how do we know that we need to adjust L1, L2, L3? And of course the Pat, um, <laughs> as we like to call them, Sunday school answer, um, you follow your scope, look at your x-ray. Okay, that's all fine and dandy, but if you're a new in practice, you're probably looking at it going, I have no idea. So one of the driving forces behind an L1, L2, and L3 comes from the symptoms. And so what they tend to do is they produce symptoms that are stronger than the actual pain of the location. So with L1, L2, and L3, um, I have to go back to the fact that um, I have a, I have some old notes. We'll call them top secret notes. These uh, notes are not the classical Gonstead notes you're used to. Those notes that are now published were published after the notes that I have. Um, my secret, secret notes, I think, were probably what motivated somebody to create what's now called the Gonstead notes, um, to take away the idea that there might be another set of secret notes. But uh, in those secret notes that I have, uh, one of the things that talked about in there, and it caught my attention right off the bat, and I thought to myself, you need to memorize this, and I've used it so much, and it actually is truly very reliable. Um, I've been, since gone back and hunted down the neurology of it, and it totally makes sense as to why it works. But in those notes, it says that L1 and L2 supply nerves to the front of the hip. So when I say hip, I don't mean hip like patients usually mean hip. I mean your actual hip. So if you think of the... Um, I don't know if it necessarily if it goes to the acetabulum or to the femoral head or just generally to that area, but the front side, if the patient complains of the front side of the hip as having pain, L1 and L2 can do that. If they complain of the back side of the hip, that's often L2, L3. And so a lot of times when a patient comes in complaining of hip pain, what they're actually gonna probably get is a sacrum adjustment, an ileum adjustment, maybe an L5 adjustment. But you can see that if the neurology there is coming from the upper lumbars, it doesn't matter how much you adjust those segments, you're not actually gonna ever get that patient better. It's, you, have to actually, you have to get to the upper lumbars to get to them. And I think that that's what makes this area so incredibly tricky, is the fact that L1 and L2 in particular, but L3 as well, they're never gonna be screaming in pain. They're never gonna be telling you, hey, look over here, I'm the guy. And so you have to get really good at it. And truthfully, when it comes to scoping those areas, scoping those areas is very tricky as well because you have to tilt your scope down. And so uh, we don't talk about scoping a lot, but I, we have done a few episodes on scoping. And one of the key things to remember is that when you scope, if your scope is staying parallel to the floor and it's going up and down like an elevator, you're probably doing it wrong. The scope needs to follow the contour of the spine. And that means depending on certain spines, it may be tilted so it's almost pointing at the floor. It may be tilted so it's pointing at the sky. And so as you come around to L1, L2, L3, 
a lot of people have a pretty big lordosis. And so you have to be tracking in on those. And it's very easy, very, very, very easy to lose contact with the scope around T12, L1, L2. And so a lot of times if there is a reading, uh, people will often miss those because one or both probes will pull away from the spine and they miss making that connection. So the scope will tell you, uh, in fact, I can tell you there have been many times when in the process of scoping, uh, the scope told me L1, L2, L1, L2 in particular, and I didn't really, wasn't really thinking that that's what the person had and had to go hunt it down and only to find out that it was an L1 or L2. So the scope is absolutely very valuable in that area, but only when it's being used correctly uh, to be able to pick those up. The x-ray will sometimes give you a little bit, but the reason why uh, that area needs to be talked about and given special attention is the fact that it's, it's primarily the symptoms that drive it and the primary symptom that, that lets you know that area is hip pain. And so um, I, one, of the, one of the funny things that's happened is on many occasions, in fact, I had this happen not that long ago, I had somebody who had an L1, L2, adjusted them, hip was instantly better. And I mentioned to them that I said, you know who I see that on, they were asked how did this happen? And I said, you know, the people I see this on the most are golfers. And their, this person's eyes got really big. And he goes, I just played like, like, like 20 something holes yesterday. And I thought, oh, that's so funny. So a lot of times it's golfers. Um, a lot of times it's because they're over swinging. So I often joke with them about that, that maybe, maybe if you swung correctly, you wouldn't have, the, you wouldn't have an upper lumbar problem. Um, so it's often people, you'll, I'll see it in groups because a group of guys, they want to outdrive each other. And so they'll overswing to try to do that. And that's one of the places they'll get it. Um, the other one is um, bad golfers where they don't always hit the ball off the tee and sometimes they hit the ground instead. Uh, you can think about swinging motion. If you're swinging and you're probably swinging too hard and then you miss the ball and you clip the ground, that moment of impact, you can see how that would create problems with it, particularly L1 underneath the rib cage. So the, uh, <laughs> the golfers tend to be uh, high likelihood of upper lumbar problems. Um, another place where when somebody has an upper lumbar problem where you see issues is when they sit, especially if they have a chair they like to sit in that's too soft. Because if the chair is too soft and allows them to fall back into it, it pulls the curve out. So really anytime the lumbars are being flattened out, uh, which typically happens with um, a posterior pelvic tilt, uh, not necessarily while standing, but it can happen while seated. So you can imagine if you're sitting in a chair and the chair start, uh, like say a couch that's really soft and the chair doesn't support you the way it should. So as you're sitting there, it's slowly compressing. And by after you've sat there for 30 minutes or an hour, now the hips and butt are lower than the knees are. Well, that, that is a, the kind of posterior pelvic tilt that will pull out the curve of the spine. And anytime, since we know posterior already drives these things, if you're pulling out that curve, you are essentially driving a posterior, uh, they'll start to light up. And so um, you hear that a lot from people that they'll say, well, I sit in a certain chair, all of a sudden that hip pain is like a dagger in my hip and I can hardly stand up. So, uh, so that's, a, that's an area that definitely you wanna pay close attention to is, is the hip. Uh, as, as letting you know that. And so when you see a patient who's complaining of hip pain, uh, I would actually recommend you rule out L1, L2, and even L3. Uh, I would say primarily it's L1, L2. L3 doesn't sneak in there as much, but it does on occasion. And so I would um, focus mostly on L1, L2, 
But if a patient complains of hip pain, I would rule those out before you start doing something else. Don't just assume that it has to be biomechanical because that's, I think, why people end up going towards sacrum and ilium and L5 uh, is they're thinking there's some kind of mechanical thing happening here that's binding it up. And certainly that can happen. That's why in chiropractic there is no always and there is no never. Uh, It's always somewhere in between those two extremes. But I can say the majority of the time, uh, true hip pain is probably not uh, from that lower area. It's probably from L1, L2. However, there is an exception. And that, the major exception, would be an EX ilium driven by the EX because when a patient is very rotated, they're not going to crab walk sideways. Those, uh, the, the femoral heads are going to roll on the acetabulum so they can still walk straight and that's where you'll get binding. So like we know that's, that's where, um, hip degeneration comes from. Uh, so there definitely are biomechanics factors that play into the hip and that can lead to hips degenerating and falling apart. That's a different thing. With the L1, L2, you're not going to see hip degeneration. You're not going to see any signs of that. So another clue that'll give it to me is the patient will complain about their hip. They'll say, I swear I need to get a hip replacement. So I went to the doctor and had him shoot an x-ray and they said, my hips were fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They look healthy. Well, that's telling me it's not biomechanics. So it's got to be neurological, which leads me right to L1 and L2. Um, And I'll tell you, those are the patients that when they come in, they're already a little desperate because thing they thought it was is not what it was and they don't have a second idea in mind of what they think it might be so when you can get in there and you can fix that uh, and save their back from that that problem and and repair that uh, they're very appreciative and they kind of think of you as a miracle worker because um, especially once you get it fixed that's that's something they weren't expecting and so they find that to be uh, uh, a miracle in their mind as to what, what happened so So those are definitely good patients to get fixed. Okay, so once we've identified that L1, L2, L3, one of those segments is the problem, we need to do the adjustment. So we look at the options we have. We can push it, we can pull it, we can adjust it on the knee, chest table, or the high-low, I'll categorize those two together because there's only slight differences there. And, um, I'll talk to you some other time about the differences between the high-low and the knee chest and how to maximize those differences. But we'll just lump them together and say that they're the, the same thing for our purposes right now. So I'm going to go through these in order, and I'll start at the top and go down. So let's start with L1. I think L1 is probably the one that um, is probably the biggest struggle. And the reason why is because we know that L1 has, in general, an I to S lift, uh, basically because we're coming off the end of the top side of the lordosis, headed into a kyphosis, and so as it, the, the rib cage needs to sit upright, which means that T12 should be fairly perpendicular to the ground, or parallel to the ground, um, so L1 should be coming around to that, but it has a slight tilt back. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I see uh, people make with L1 is trying to adjust it to inferior to superior. Yes, there is an inferior superior component, but you don't want to go too much that way. In fact, for the most part, you can get most of that inferior superior lift out pre-thrust, regardless of whether you're pushing or pulling or knee chest. In fact, what I would suggest to you as a means of practice, I'm not saying that this is how you should adjust these on your patients all the time, 
but hopefully you spend some time doing some kind of uh, active practice, uh, just like an athlete would to try to develop things. So what I would suggest as like a practice drill that you can do uh, on a friend or a family member or uh, somebody who's unconscious at the moment, not paying attention, I'm just kidding. Um, but the intention obviously is not to hurt them. But what I want you to feel is that if you do a pull move on it, which a pull move on an L1 is definitely not my favorite thing to do, but if you'll line up on it in a pull move, I think you'll probably best feel the proper I to S and realize that it probably is not as much as you're thinking it is because you cannot fake or over exaggerate it in that position. It, it tends to make it a little, it's a little more honest about what's really there. And so I would suggest at least setting up like a pull move on an L1 and just get a feel for where that line of drive is and then compare that to how you might think that you would need to push it or uh, do it on the new chest table or the high-low uh, and realize that it's not as much. Uh, and that would be another way is the, between the high-low and the chest. A lot of times on the high-low, because you've got that thoracic piece set in there, it flattens things out a little bit. And on the high-low, you can develop a good feel for where the L1 needs to go. In fact, that's a recommendation I've made to people for years is that if you don't use the knee chest table much and you're afraid of the knee chest table and you're not really sure you can move things on the knee chest table, I recommend using the high-low first, and when you get it pretty comfortable with a segment on the high-low, it's then very easy to transition over to the knee chest because you now in your head, you have memorized where those lines of drives are. And so when you start doing an L1 on the high-low, it gives away to you that you should not be lifting it so high I to S, then you can come back to the knee chest table and do it. And I suppose another point I should make here uh, has to do with nitty-gritty technique but when you're doing high-low and or knee chest in order to have a comfortable contact every part of your hand should be touching the patient's back if you set up for um, a thoracic or a lumbar on the knee chest or the high-low high or even on a slot table or your pelvic bench face down for that matter if you set up and your knuckles are up in the air the bottom side of your knuckles are not touching the patient's back, I can guarantee you your, your uh, adjustment is not as comfortable as you would like to think that it is. Because as soon as those knuckles come up, the piezoform gets hard. And a hard piezoform contact is a very uncomfortable contact. So whether you are side posture pushing or knee chest table, setting any segment on the chest table, one of the things to focus on majorly is relaxing the contact hand. It needs to be as relaxed and as soft as possible. And this is another little point of uh, practice experimentation is that if you have a patient that you're, say, a classmate or anybody, a uh, family member, and, you're, and they're going to let you kind of experiment around a little bit, obviously we're going to be careful not to hurt them, but what you're going to do is um, lay your hand on them, but then raise your knuckles on purpose and make a higher piezoform contact. And don't just listen to, especially if it's a family member, they will probably have no problem telling you just how painful that is, but ignore that. <laughs> um, yes, they are, we know they're not going to like it, but what I want you to feel for is how their body responds, because you'll feel the muscle tension and you'll feel all this response. And so then the goal is once you've made that muscle response, now relax your hand and see if you can make it go the other direction. See if you can get them to relax it and give it back to you. Um, it's one thing to come in nice and soft at the beginning and never lose it. It's something else to actually make a hard contact, 
make a reaction in the patient and then be able to regain that control back by by your control and that's a skill that has to be developed as well and this is one of the ways you do it is by having somebody on the chest table and give them a little a little something with your pizer form and then see how can you control them with the comfort of your hand and the truth is they will only be as relaxed as you are so if you feel like they're not relaxed enough you need to relax more and, you, and that's how you can play these things and so with that l1 that is the trick um, in that regard l1 might be the might be easier to adjust than some of the others because for L1, I really like to use an inferior hand contact because in that position, the elbow to wrist is the perfect line of drive. And for the most part, you can come in really soft and easy using body weight. Uh, and then you just have to make a little bit of an impulse. It's not even a thrust, really. It's more of like just kind of drop your body a little bit and, and just give a little oomph to it. And those usually will go pretty okay. Uh, if we drop down to L2, that gets a little bit tougher because L2 doesn't have that same tilt. So now we're coming in a little flatter. So the trick you learn for L2 is that you want to take out the I to S pre before you push P to A. And if you take out too much I to S, you, it's just, you're just as cursed as if you don't take out enough. So you have to find that sweet spot. And once you find that sweet spot and realize that it's just a little I to S and then take it down, now you need to go back to L1 and apply that same principle because L1 is the same way. It's just a little I to S and then you take it P to A. You don't just keep going I to S. You don't drive it up because that's a that's a way that you can cheat a little bit. But if you just go drive it I to S and you drive linearly I to S, you're going to get the facet joints because that's what's, that's what's living at that angle is the facet joints, not the disc. And so if you really want to fix these problems and fix them fast, you've got to get that disc adjustment. And that means not going so much I to S but giving that P to A L1, L2, and even L3. Uh, L3 is a little bit of a trick. Um, it's hard and easy for different reasons. So what makes L3 easy is the fact that it's pretty much flat. There's hardly any I to S. You just give it just a little I to S just to create a little bit of space, just a tiniest little bit, and then it's P to A and it's basically towards the floor. Now what makes it hard, there's two things that make it hard. One is if they've maintained the proper lordosis, it's really deep down there. So the really hard part is can you chase it all the way down to where it lives but not lose that patient so that they start tightening up and protecting on you. And that's where this skill I was talking about of relaxing your hand and being able to control the patient, you need more of that for L3 than any of the others. And so if you don't have that skill, you really won't be able to get L3 because you won't be able to chase it far enough down to get to it and be able to set it that deep. And so that's a skill to work on for doing L3. The other reason L3 can be really hard is if you get in a situation where the patient is losing their lordosis, if they've got a very flat back. And so the flat, if it's flat enough, the, uh, the knee chest is actually out. Uh, you don't do it on there. Uh, if they're really flat backed, but you've got to do an L3, I mean, that's a really, it's probably more of a hypothetical situation. Um, but since anything's possible, we'll assume this happens. I wouldn't say this is the majority of the time. But let's say they've got an L3, they've got a very, um, flat spine, we won't make them kyphotic or anything, but they're just, they're flat, or they have a very shallow lordosis. Uh, what you're gonna do is put them on the high-low table, and um, what I like to do is crank the, I like to keep the uh, resistance as high as I can possibly set it. I like a lot of resistance on there, because that allows me to put a lot of more pressure pre-thrust and not have the table drop out. Uh, 
uh, when I'm trying to load up the joint and get it to that end point, but the belly part keeps dropping out, and so then I'm loading them up and they're moving away from me, to me that's very, very frustrating. So I load it up really high, um, because I know that when I, I can always drop my body a little bit, it's gonna have some give. I want it to give at that point, I don't want it to give it in the setup. So um, the setup on the L3, and I'll just start easing into it, and I love it when I can get a pretty good amount of pressure and the, and the thoracic piece hasn't moved yet. And then, I can, and then only when I make my actual thrust does the thoracic piece drop down and give it that space. Uh, so that's, that's how the, the L3 usually moves best. Um, of course, if you're down at L3, I would say for L3, a push move is, um, is a better move a lot of times for an L3 than say it is for an L1. Uh, you can do it in L1. Uh, in fact, um, <laughs> on some occasions I've done thoracics side posture with a push move. Uh, that's something I learned from Dr. Tanaka. Uh, he taught me that in El Salvador one time. And uh, I don't pull that move out very often, but there's a certain scenario where it's helpful. It's usually somebody with a, with a massive kyphosis. You're down at a lower thoracic, P10, 11, or 12, um, and they've got a lot of inferiority. And so in, in that situation, you put them on knee, chest, table, high, low, whatever, and their kyphosis is just holding everything up. And so the angle on that low thoracic is almost like you're trying to shoot towards their head, just straight up their spine. So that's when that push move will sometimes work. So I'm talking about that some other time. Um, but that's when you can do that. So a push move is really something you can use all over the lumbars. They're all viable. But I would say that an L3 is a, a push move ranks a, a lot higher, where I'm considering that a lot more than I would on an L1. L1, I, there's certain scenarios where I might push it, but most of the time I'd actually prefer to do it on uh, an E-chest would actually be my preference most of the time, unless there's something telling me not to. And I think that's kind of how you make the clinical decision making, is that you've got your preferred way to do it, and so all things being equal, let's do it the preferred way, unless we have a good reason not to. And so then it's helpful to know those reasons. and. Uh, in most situations, I could probably give you a few reasons not to do something, but for the most part, you kind of have to figure out your own reasons because sometimes it's a matter of body style and things like that. And so there may be a reason you don't want to do something that I might do, or I might not want to do something that you would do, uh, simply because your hand fits better than mine, or my hand fits better than yours, or um, some other reason like that. So there can be little differences in body style that makes you prefer a certain move for something more than I would or vice versa so uh, th that's kind of a, a guide to that area and so I realized uh, I started thinking about this a while back that uh, I think a lot of a lot of times if we if we get outside of the garden today community but we just think chiropractic as a whole I think chiropractors as a whole are probably not adjusting L1 L2 and L3 as often as they should be and probably not as well as they should be and so anytime I see that kind of a scenario, uh, to me, that's an area where if I can develop expertise and be really good at that area, I know that most chiropractors are not. And that gives me an advantage because any patient who's got that, um, I can get those patients and I can keep those patients and I can get them to refer where most chiropractors are probably going to lose those patients because even if they do address that area, which they probably won't, uh, they probably won't be able to adjust it well because right? they'll probably just use their same old bag of tricks and they won't have good technique for that so I think it's very wise to, to pay some attention to L1, L2, and L3 because uh, they're not super frequent but they're also I wouldn't even call I wouldn't call them rare by any means um, you definitely do them I would say that most most gunstead doctors that are seeing um, 
fair number of patients would probably tell you that they do an L1, L2, or L3 uh, once a day, maybe. So, uh, I mean, that's not the bulk of what you're doing, but that's that's significant over the course of a week and a month. So, um, I think it's an area that definitely needs to not be neglected. And if we focus the right attention on it, we can really help a lot of people. Uh, we can get rid of a lot of those those hip pains that people think are degenerated hips, and it kind of kind of educates them on the fact that. Um, you don't have to have a hip that's wearing out to be having hip pain. Sometimes hip pain is neurological, and that kind of can be a paradigm change.